Hey, it's your fellow revolutionary, and these are Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. Storytelling with a purpose to magnify the Lord Jesus. This episode is entitled A Journey to Faith. Find out more at talesoftherevolution.com. In the early 2000s, I discovered a new hobby, downloading Bible study MP3s. A plethora of files were found at firefighters.org, a ministry called Firefighters for Christ. This was where I discovered my guest storyteller, Dr. Phil Fernandez. To give Dr. Fernandez plenty of time, let's get right into his story, as he starts by talking about a time when he encountered a Satan worshiper while in the Marine Corps. Yeah, see, what was happening was uh, just like the first time, you know, the first time I was so early in my walk when I confronted a Satan worshiper that I was so dumb that I thought, unless we're looking at each other face to face, there's no spiritual battle going on. So he was more mature in his Satanism than I was in my Christianity. I was a new believer when, when I heard about him, guys were freaking out. It was in another platoon, so they told me, they said, they said, Colonel, you got to talk to this guy. You got to confront him. And I said, all right, I'll get my boys. So I, I went and told the uh, other Marines, and here are all these big, brave Marines, and they all told me, said, no, heck no, Fernal, we're not gonna, we're not gonna confront that guy. We'll, we'll, you know, pray for you at a distance. So I said, all right, well, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray and fast for 24 hours. Join me on that, and pray for me, and then pray for me when I go and confront them. But I had to confront them alone. But once he backed down from me, and I walked up to him, and uh, I said, excuse me, are you Corporal so-and-so? I don't want to use his real name. And he said, I am. I said, well, there's a rumor going around that you're a Satanist. Is that true? And he turned, and he had crystal clear blue eyes, and he, he got his eyes real close to my eyes. I felt like he was looking into my soul. And he said, I, you know, I asked him, are you a Satanist? And he said, I am. And I can remember it to this day because I am, you know, that's the way Jesus identifies himself as Yahweh. And I was just like terrified, the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I just wanted to turn and run. But I think I got hit with the perfect gift of, uh, of faith where all of a sudden I had no doubts about Jesus at all. And I got even closer to him. So I think our noses were touching. And I said, well, this base is property of Jesus. My master created your master. And uh, when I when I speak, you will listen. Do you understand me? Now, this is a guy who was outranking me. He was a corporal. I was a, a lance corporal at the time. But I said, do you understand me? And he backed up, and his eyes got watery, and he looked down at the floor, and he just went like, like, um, like he was shivering or something. And um, and so then I just preached the gospel to him and all. But when I went back to my room, I. Uh, I thought the battle was over, and I thought, like, you know, I got real arrogant, and I thought, boy, Jesus, me and you really kicked his butt, huh? And, but in the meantime, he went back up to his room and started continuing to cast spells on me. So for two weeks, I didn't know what was going on, and I was freaking out. And I had just no desire to study God's Word, no desire for the things of God, temptations to do evil things, and I praise God that none of those temptations were ever actualized kind of desiring to do evil, but no opportunity for it, you know? And, uh, but then when I woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, having a nightmare, 
where the voices in my the voice in my head sounded like me, but it was saying things about Satan that should only be said about Jesus. I knew immediately, okay, this is not me. This is coming from the other side. So I got on my knees and I prayed a prayer of forgiveness that God forgive me for my arrogance and I acknowledged my total dependence on the Lord. And then I walked over and picked up a Bible in my room, opened it up, and I started enjoying reading it again. And um, uh, the next time I was much more mature in my walk, so there wasn't any heads up, no encounter with a Satan worshiper or anything. But I just started feeling like I, I, I was like real unimportant and I didn't fit in with anybody. And my wife was going through real health challenges back then. Right now my wife is doing great. God's really... You know, I almost thought I was going to lose her at one time, but she was pretty much bedridden. So I had nobody to go to, and I was just kind of, things were dragging me down. And I had a speaking engagement in Seattle, so I was on a ferry with this brother from the church. And a uh, good, good, godly brother would just go on speaking engagements with me. And he said, uh, Pastor, I've been wanting to tell you something for two weeks. So when he said two weeks, it was like, well, you know, cause I didn't feel like speaking that night. Because I didn't feel like I had the spirit of God, I just felt depressed, and I'm not the kind of guy that gets depressed. And he said, um, "I've been wanting to tell you something for two weeks, but I don't know how to tell you." But he said, "You know, my son has his son's heavily medicated, has a lot of a lot of issues there." But he said, "My son's been going into these fits and these tantrums, and he speaks in a gravelly voice that doesn't even sound like his own voice, and he's either in his bedroom or he's in his bathroom." And he says vulgar stuff, and then he he said, but uh, he said, I think he's demon-possessed. And he said that, uh, and I asked him, when you pray, does does it shut it down? He said, yeah. He said, whenever I, he says, I could just call on the name of Jesus even in my mind and not verbalize it, and it shuts it down. And so, uh, so I told him, that, you know, how to deal with him and all and stuff, and, and, and they actually took care of it by the grace of God. But he said, though, he said, but Pastor, he mentioned your name. At that point, I was feeling so low. I was like, gee, what did he say, you know? And uh, he said, he said he mentioned you by name. He said, I don't even think my son knows your entire name. And but he mentioned you by name and said he wants you dead. And, uh, and I actually uh, felt relieved at that point because then I realized what was happening. And I told him, hey, man, I've been... Almost exactly two weeks, I've been really down and stuff. We need to pray. So we we prayed on the ferry right over. And so when I got to the speaking engagement, I was all filled with the Spirit and, and pumped up. But uh, but there's, you know, I don't believe that demons can possess true Bible-believing Christians. But I, I, if we open the door and don't have the full arm of God on, they can mess with us big time. And... Uh, yeah, so that's what the, what that deal was about. And, you know, I've been asked over the years, I, I've i been asked to investigate different instances where there's been paranormal, uh, demonic, supernatural activity and stuff like that. I, I handle it more like a police officer since I had 10 years in law enforcement, did a lot of investigations, and I, I try to identify the open door. And then when I find who the open door is, I try to... Uh, you know, then confront that person and and uh, try to deal with along those lines. So I've never, I, I there's been several times where I've prayed to cast a demon out of somebody, but I cannot honestly say that I knew for sure if it was um, if the person was demonized. So I prayed one of those prayers that Father in Jesus' precious name, 
if there are any demons dwelling or messing with this person, you know, I cast them out in the name of the Lord Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But so I cannot honestly say that I actually performed any exorcisms. But I, you know, God has placed me into some situations that I would not rather be in. And, uh, and there's been that kind of spiritual warfare and stuff. And this is why for the last decade I've been trying to speak at apologetics conferences on paranormal apologetics, basically dealing with the demonic realm and um, all the UFO stuff, Bigfoot stuff, uh, haunted houses, ghosts, all this kind of stuff. And finally, um, uh, I just started getting a thumbs up uh, rather recently, so um, so this summer, the first time I gave uh, a lecture on paranormal apologetics, and that day they broke into my rental car and stole my computer. And next time I spoke on them, almost had an accident, almost uh, smashed my finger, and it just you know, but it's just one of those deals where we got we can't drop our guards. We gotta yes, there's a a big vast intellectual aspect to biblical Christianity and we apologists spend so much time in that but there is also this big vast spiritual aspect where uh, you know our battle is ultimately uh, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places not against flesh and blood and sometimes we forget that so I was born on January 1st, 1960, in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Newark's a uh, big city over there in Essex County, New Jersey. And I was born to uh, my full-blooded Portuguese, Joe, Joe Fernandez, and my, my mom, uh, Angelina Minichino, was uh, Italian there. So I'm the grandson of Portuguese and Italian immigrants. And I was raised in a uh, Roman Catholic home uh, my dad's side of the family, they were really, uh, really strict Roman Catholics, and they were they're really good people, and I still enjoy spending time with them to this day. They were a lot like, uh, a lot like evangelical Protestant Christians, they're Bible reading Catholics, with one exception, and that was with uh, Our Lady of Fatima being Portuguese. They were heavy into uh, kind of veneration of Mary there, so. And uh, but my mom's side of the family, they were more Catholic in name only, and uh, there was a you know slight mafia influence on my mother's side of the family. She had several relatives that uh, worked uh, with the Genovese family out of out of New York. So and they, my dad, sheltered us from that. So we didn't we would just see these you know rich guys showing up at uh, funerals and wakes and weddings. And, uh, you know, he'd keep it from us about what they did for a living and that type of thing. But uh, but it's just kind of the mentality I was raised in. Uh, kind of grew up mainly, primarily with Italians. Uh, my dad moved us uh, out of East Orange and into a little more mellow area about 10 miles outside of Newark in a place called Caldwell, New Jersey. And um, I went to um, Catholic school, St. Al's. And um, St. Aloysius and uh, on Bloomfield Avenue, just 10 miles outside of uh, Newark. And uh, 
I, I didn't know it, but back then, um, you know, you don't, if you grow up in a rough area, you don't know it's a rough area because it's all you know. You got nothing to compare it with. And, uh, and so I didn't know that, uh, I just thought it was neat that on Friday nights, even though I was Catholic, the Presbyterian church would open up its, Cole, New Jersey would open up its, its gym and allow, uh, you know, guys to box each other. And so then that forced you to shadow box and jog during the rest of the week so you didn't run out of gas and get beat up on Friday night. And so I just thought it was a nice thing that the churches did. And eventually it was the Caldwell Police Athletic League that uh, that did that, that opened, started a gym. And, and so I had guys like, you know, Manny Gonzalez and Bill Stevens, ex, ex-professional fighters that were training me. And, uh, and then Joe DeBellos, who was a police officer with the Caldwell Police. And, but I had no idea they were doing that just to keep, you know, kids off the street and, uh, to try to keep us out of trouble. And, uh, during my teenage years when I was in boxing, I, you know, I started drinking. The legal drinking age was 18, but if you had one of your friends or relatives that was 15 and he had a beard and mustache, even if they knew he wasn't 18, they'd sell him alcohol and use it as an excuse for getting away with it. So we, we did some drinking, we did some, some, some drugs, mostly just pot and stuff. And, uh, it was the 1970s and did, uh, did some stealing. I taught guys how to steal and when to steal, when to get away with it. And, you know, things that I'm very, very uh, ashamed of now. And, um, but whenever I was boxing, it was keeping me out of trouble. And I didn't know that Manny Gonzalez and Bill Stevens go into the Presbyterian church there. That I didn't know that they were Bible-believing Christians. And they were using it as a way to try to reach kids. But they were very, very quiet. And Manny was kind of punchy and he had a heavy Mexican accent. So I couldn't understand what he was saying. So I didn't find out till after I got saved that uh, he had been witnessing to me and all. But... When I went to high school, I went to Essex Catholic High School in Newark. It was a Catholic college prep school, but it was pretty expensive. So about halfway through 10th grade, I transferred to the public school back in Caldwell, New Jersey. It was there that I uh, began to get skeptical about God's existence. You know, I was thinking, you know, oh, well, my dad's a Roman Catholic, but I really don't believe, you know, what he says. And uh, so I... I'm, I'm skeptical about God's existence, but but I noticed whenever I got inside a boxing ring, I'd make the sign of the cross and, you know, kind of say a little prayer like, you know, God, if you're there, protect me and help me hurt the other guy. And and um, so there was, uh, it was kind of a convenient skepticism. Uh, I do remember in my early teens, the Reader's Digest, saw my dad reading an article on the Shroud of Turin. And that caught my attention. I asked my dad, I said, what's that? He said, well, some think it's the burial cloth of Christ. And I said, that thing? And he said, well, not really. He said, the shroud itself is kind of unimpressive. You can't make it out. This is a photographic negative of it. And so I can remember as, a, I don't know, 13, 14-year-old kid thinking, uh, no way somebody could have forged it if all the details are in a photographic negative. And so in the back of my mind, it was kind of like, okay, I don't believe God exists. However, there's that shroud of terrain, so I need to be respectful of Jesus just in case. Another thing, too, was my dad used to talk about the Antichrist. 
coming someday, and that always scared the heck out of me. So, uh, so I had that in the back of my mind, where I had a little bit of interest in end-time prophecies, though I never really cracked open the Bible. And um, so I was just boxing back in Jersey, and I graduated high school. I kind of slimed my way through the last couple of years because I really had no direction. There was no scholarships or anything for boxers back then, and but a light heavyweight at the uh, Caldwell Police Athletic League. He was a, he had been an orphan. His dad died when he was two. His mom died when he was 14. And so him and his brother just kind of, you know, worked under the table at a bagel shop, and they gave him a cot in the back and a place to wash. And uh, so he was boxing. He was a light heavyweight at the gym and. He always wanted to be a Marine. I could care less about being a, mar a Marine myself, but he, he talked me into going into the Marine Corps with him on the buddy system. At this time, I was uh, 20 years old. I wasn't going anywhere with my fighting, but boxing back in New Jersey, very political. And, you know, if you don't knock out Lou Duva's guys back then in the 70s, uh, uh, Lou Duva's fighters, uh, they automatically win a decision. So, yeah, I wasn't really getting anywhere. I wanted to take it out of Jersey. I didn't have any decent jobs or anything, didn't have the money. So I figured, well, you know what, a guy, you know, convinced me to sign up with him in Marine Corps and the buddy system. So I figured, well, I don't want to be a Marine, but I'll be with him wherever, uh, wherever he goes, I'll go. And, uh, and at least there's somebody I know, but the problem was he never showed up to take the oath. And so, um, so I showed up with five strangers, and they flew us out to uh, Paris Island, South Carolina, for Marine Corps boot camp. And um, so I just figured, you know, okay, I just threw away three, did a three-year enlistment. So I figured, okay, I just threw away three years of my life. New Jersey, I'll see you when I get out. And uh, so when I went in boot camp, it was like, you know, first time in my life, guys yelling at me, guys screaming at me, making fun of my my mother, making fun of my family, and um, in New Jersey, you know, your dad always taught you, you know, somebody makes fun of your, your family, you you take them down, you take them down hard, you know, you never turn the other cheek, but here I was having to, even as a non-believer, learn how to turn the other cheek, because in Marine Corps boot camp, that's all your DIs do, they mess with you, and they badmouth your family and stuff, so I was uh, out of my element, uh, total loss of freedom in boot camp, uh, you probably have less freedom in some boot in Marine Corps boot camp than you do in some prisons, and um, it was only going to last about three months. But it was just it was just tough. So I started looking for answers. This was uh, October 1980, and uh, you know I wasn't patriotic, but we had uh, hostages in Iran when I went in. So I thought, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to have to uh, going to have to go over, you know, and earn my money. And uh, because this, this this is going to end up in war, but I didn't know that Ronald Reagan was going to get elected while I was in boot camp. So by the time I got out of boot camp, Ayatollah Khomeini was uh, coughing up the hostages. And um, so what that ended up turning into was uh, rather than uh, you know you know don't get me wrong, I'm glad I never had to kill a man, but but rather than an exciting you know combat duty, uh, I ended up getting sent up to Bangor, Washington to guard uh, nuclear weapons, which is a, about as boring as it gets. So so even from the time I was boot camp, I started, in boot camp, I started to look for answers. Uh, the Marine Corps kind of humbled me, so uh, I realized I wasn't the, they didn't care about my, you know, they used to call me Ferno back in Jersey, and you know, my brother were the Ferno brothers, and 
they knew us as the boxers and people respected us, but the Marine Corps just didn't really seem to care at all. And so even in boot camp, uh, you know, the Gideons give you this New Testament, little small New Testament and Psalms. So like any Marine that reads the Bible, all I was reading was the book of Revelation. But, uh, but I was looking for answers. And, uh, and you know, so rather than he asked me, does God exist, rather than saying no, or I doubt it, uh, at this point I would probably have said, well, I, I kind of hope so, and, but I'm not sure. And uh, so about April of 81, after Marine Corps boot camp and then uh, infantry training school in Camp Pendleton, uh, Southern California, uh, they sent me to Bangor to guard nuclear weapons, and that was an incredibly boring uh, time for me. And so it wasn't really a search for truth. It was more of a search for meaning. And uh, and I, I got back into alcohol, started drinking, and then I just, you know, one night I was just kneeling down in front of a toilet bowl, and I thought, man, I used to be somebody. And, you know, I had a name back in Jersey, you know, and, and now uh, here I am kneeling down in front of a toilet bowl and, and um, so I just decided, okay, well, I'm just going to quit drinking. I'm getting in trouble anyway. And so I stopped drinking. Then, um, and then I, then I, I, you know, searching for meaning. I just started boxing Marines, but they didn't know how to fight. So even when I was fighting, you know, boxing big guys, they didn't know what they were doing. So, so I was looking for meaning. So then I remember my my uncle Rocco, Rocco Manachino, my godfather back in Jersey, my mother's brother. He had given me a um, for. Uh, Christmas or my birthday, uh, Hal Lindsey book, 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. I don't know why, because my Uncle Rocco never had a spiritual bone in his body. It must have been at, like a television discount or something. And uh, But I had the book because I didn't have many books. So it was just sitting on my dresser back home. So I wrote my mom and told her to, you know, mail me that book and mail me my Catholic Bible. And um, so when I was in Bangor, I started reading about the end times and the only paragraph I never remember reading in uh, Hal Lindsey's book, 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, is the paragraph where he tells you how to be born again, how to get saved. I just, I was still thinking along the lines of, you know what, maybe Jesus is Lord, and uh, and so you just gotta, you know, do good things to earn your salvation. So I didn't, I wasn't really sure about salvation, but I had given up on just about everything everything looking for meaning so I started going back to Roman Catholic Mass in Bremerton Washington there was a church Holy Trinity and a lady there Leanne Macho is her name she uh, she was a middle-aged lady and she promised us Marines a home-cooked meal if we'd go over her house that day so we we took her up on the offer we went over there and uh, and I saw there's like you know get into her house and there's all these pictures of, uh, of Jesus on the wall so we knew, and we were all, you know, rough guys from New York and New Jersey and Boston, and mostly Italian guys. But and uh, but we thought we'd been had, but we thought, eh, you know, we'll get the home cooked meal and all. But but the lady understood that uh, there was no way she was going to be able to reach us. That we were a little rough around the edges. So she she just cooked the meal and just told us uh, that she's got a friend uh, who's an ex-convict, and he, she invited him over for dinner too, and he's going to talk to talk to us guys and uh, when the guy came over he had big arms and had a few scars and looked like he was the kind of guy I could respect and he was Roman Catholic and at this point as I started to look for religious answers I only wanted to talk to Roman Catholics I didn't want to uh, didn't want to hear it from uh, from Protestants and um, so it's kind of a good thing that after 
most Roman Catholics, when they come to Jesus, is usually a two to four year period where they go to Protestant Bible studies, but they stay in the Catholic Church because it's kind of like you, you figure you're born Catholic, you're going to die Catholic. And it, during that transitional period, we got to even remember Martin Luther was Roman Catholic until the Catholic Church kicked him out. So, uh, but during that period, it's amazing how many. Catholics, you can lead to Christ while you still wear the label Roman Catholic yourself. And uh, whatever the case, the guy, the ex-convict, talked to me about salvation, but I was still oblivious to it. Didn't understand what he was talking about. That was a Sunday afternoon, but he invited me to another Roman Catholic church, Star of the Sea in Bremerton, where uh, Waldo and Chris Garcia had a prayer meeting. It would turn out to be a Catholic charismatic prayer meeting, and. Um, and so uh, I went that Tuesday night, and then, uh, and I think it was probably around June 1981 that uh, the ex-convict and a couple other guys uh, cornered me and talked to me about the Lord. And uh, I said that uh, there's some things I got to change in my life first, because I thought if I became a Christian, from one, from the way they explain the gospel message, if I trusted in Jesus for salvation, He's going to save me. But then I figured, well, then the next day I'm going to lose my salvation because of the stuff I'm doing. And, you know, I was loaning money to Marines at a really high interest rate from one paycheck to the next. I, and I had money floating around that, you know, I, I hadn't brought in. So, I mean, I wasn't, I was doing some, some bad stuff. And, uh, but uh, the ex-convict told me, he said, look, you got to come to Jesus just as you are. You'll never know if you're going to get this opportunity again. You got to come to him just as you are and it's his job change you from within and uh, and so I ran out of arguments I was looking for meaning and it just made sense that yeah God became a man and it was Jesus and I certainly don't deserve to go to heaven so I trusted in, uh, in Jesus for salvation that night at that prayer meeting then I continued to go to that prayer meeting but uh, I started realizing that there was a little bit of abuse of the gifts little hyper emotionalism little uh and then there was still a little bit of that Roman Catholicism there. And so it took me a couple of years to study in the Word before I realized that I needed to uh, needed to get out of the Catholic Church and needed to get out of the, the charismatic movement. The good thing was, as soon as I got saved, uh, my old uh, Bible teacher back then, one of the guys that had witnessed to me, his name was Bill Gregory, he got me started on navigators courses. So I studied the Bible for three years. 1981 to 84 things were crazy in the Marine Corps because I was uh, I got in a lot of trouble when I first got up there but they never did any paperwork on it they said well he gets drunk and he gets in fights uh, but we think he's going to be a good Marine so you know he's, just, he's coming from Jersey you know what do you expect you know but once I became a Christian and I started leading guys to Christ and then uh, inviting them to prayer meetings and in church, um, then I started getting in trouble. They'd always nail me for like conduct on becoming a Marine, stuff like that. And, uh, my records, the CO remarks from Colonel Taylor was a very religious comma, still manages to do a good job. So, so there was some real prejudice against me for being a Christian. And uh, mo most, uh, most of the officers and the senior enlisted men in the Marine Corps respected me for my faith. Problem is it only takes two or three officers or guys in positions of power if they don't like christians uh you're pretty much toast and that's the way it was for me so i was just trying to stay out of trouble 
And um, I got corporal in under two years and then barely held on to that by the time I got out as a corporal in uh, October of 83. But uh, one of the daughters of the, the couple, Waldo and Chris Garcia, that had started that charismatic prayer meeting, her name was Kathy, and we, we got to be good friends, and I really started taking a liking to her in 1983, and, um, and so um, she had a little little girl from, uh, from her teenage years, and so I, um, I visited her on Mother's Day. I told her that you know I brought my friend Tony with me, so she wouldn't be freaked out by me just showing up at her house and uh, gave her a card. But I told her I showed up for all the single moms, but I didn't tell her she was the only single mom I knew. And um, so we kind of took a, took a liking to each other. And so I was getting out in October of 1983, honorably discharged, uh, you know, an honorable discharge from the United States Marine Corps. But... Um, you know, I had thought I was just going to go back to Jersey, but now all of a sudden it's like, okay, now here's a lady, and I think we're going to get married, and um, she's got a, a daughter, and for me to bring them both back to Jersey, uh, I don't know what I was concerned about more, just the, the Roman Catholic culture, well, there's the Roman Catholic culture, the high property taxes, and um, but then also the fact that all the guys I used to run with probably wouldn't like me anymore, and I wouldn't want to run with them anymore so it was like what do I got to go back to so uh, so I stayed in Washington and um, April 14th 1984 I married Kathy and um, and then I adopted her daughter I also started working uh, as a civilian at the, uh, the sub-base security police force at Bangor at the military base I had been at before and so now I was writing speed tickets and uh arresting guys for DUI and, you know, breaking up fights and going to domestic disputes, you know, things of that sort in law enforcement. And, uh, but I enrolled in Liberty University. They had an excellent, uh, this is before online stuff. This was a, had an excellent video cassette course series where you take the courses, uh, video cassette, and they'd mail the test to your pastor to the library and then they would oversee you taking the test, making sure you weren't cheating. And you'd write your papers and turn them in. And then two weeks out of every year, you'd go there for, you know, 40 hours of lectures each week and staying up all night cramming for exams. And so uh, so that's what I started in 84. And by 1987, I'd become really good friends with Gary Habermas, a philosophy professor over there at uh, Liberty. And we still are real good friends. And he's probably the expert on the Shroud of Turin, which really caught my attention, as well as uh, probably the world's leading expert on uh, Jesus' uh, bodily resurrection. So from 81 in the Marine Corps, you know, when I had gotten saved, I still had a foul mouth for a while, but I stopped hitting people. I stopped, you know, loaning money to Marines at high interest. And, and uh, so God was slowly, you know, sanctifying me and changing me from within. And, um, and so now I was enrolled in Bible College at Liberty. And in 1988, while I was still in law enforcement, planted Trinity Bible Fellowship with the lady that had led me to the Lord, Leanne Macho, the lady that invited us over to house for a home-cooked meal. And uh, so we had like five people. We grew to 12, and then we grew to 20. And then a, 
I'd have Marines come into my church, and then a boat would leave, and then we'd go right back down to 12. And so we just kind of had a had a fight through in those early years. And uh, uh, I realized the sermons I was preaching were over everybody's head, so I started the Institute of Biblical Defense, so that my studying in the area of uh, apologetics, I could. Uh, use the Institute to train people in that and I needed to just meet my own people's needs where they were at in, um, in the church and Trinity Bible Fellowship. So in 1990, I started the Institute of Bill of Defense and um, I just don't, I don't know how it happened. It's just really crazy, but the people started finding out about my work and first locally and then later on a national scale. And so I was getting emails and phone calls eventually about taking debates and stuff. And, um, I finished up my master's degree from Liberty in 1991, Master of Arts in Religion. 1994 to 1999, 1994, I left the police department and went full-time with the church for five years. I finished a doctoral degree with a school called Greenwich University, a PhD in philosophy of religion in 1997. It was around that time that I was contacted by Internet infidels. Jeffrey J. Louder and these atheists that wanted me to debate Dr. Michael Martin, a philosophy professor from Boston uh, University, probably America's leading philosophical atheist at the time. He's the author of Atheism, Philosophical Justification, and um, Case Against Christianity, something like that. So it was an internet debate, but that kind of put me on the map as far as being a serious apologist, the fact that I was the guy that debated uh, Dr. Michael Martin in 1997. And that's it's probably, I wouldn't be surprised if they had a million people view that debate because it's still, we not only have it on our website, but Internet Infidel still has it on their library, on their website. And so it's been 20 years since then. And when Dr. Michael Martin died, they even mentioned my name in the uh, secular web on the obituary as the only Christian's name that they mentioned. That, that he had debated me, and, um, and so I thought that was nice. Then I started getting other debates at college campuses. I never tried to get them. They, they would just call me up, and you either be Campus Crusade for Christ or be an atheist organization asking me to take a debate. So I debated at University of North Carolina, the Chapel Hill campus, uh, at Princeton, Washington State University, several other colleges as well, State University of New York. So the debates just kind of fell in my lap. And uh, also in 1997, my grandson, Nathan, was born. And we became buddies. And as he grew, I you know, became his weightlifting coach. And he ended up winning a world championship when he was 15 and another one when he was 17 in the bench press and the deadlift. And we're, we're still buddies to this day. And uh, he's just getting back into working with weights. And comes to my church and made a profession of faith in Christ when he was about 10 or 11. Uh, I baptized them and also uh, now 1999 the church's numbers started going down so I got a my wife and I prayed that I would get a full-time job teaching the Bible and I was teaching a lot of small Bible institutes in the Seattle area so I thought it was going to be you know, teaching adults but 10 days after we prayed I got a phone call from uh, Ken Friesen who was the principal at uh, Kings West uh, Christian High School in the area and uh, and I don't know why, but they hired me. And um, and so I've been teaching in a Christian high school since 1999. Now it's called Cross Point. And um, 
I teach uh, philosophy, ethics, world religions, courses in apologetics, Jesus the Messiah, stuff like that, and really try to gear students up to be able to defend the faith and um, when they go to college so that uh, they won't be misled. And, uh, and so it's been a real blessing to do that. I still pastor my church, so I've been doing it for 29 years. The Institute's been going for 27 years. And I've been a full-time uh, Bible teacher at the Christian High School. For, this is my 18th year and I'm finishing up. And then I um, also teach uh, philosophy and apologetics and world religions for Shepherd's Bible College, small Bible college that started in the area. So I do that part-time as well. Still do speaking engagements, still taking occasional debate. Um, we've got our website, the uh, Institute of Biblical Defense.com. You can click on sermon audio and listen to about 1,500 lectures, debates, sermons that I've done, all, all for free. My books, I've authored probably 11 or 12 books on apologetics. You can pick them up on Amazon.com. Just do a search of my name, Phil Fernandez. Make sure you spell Fernandez right. F-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-S. Thank you, Dr. Phil Fernandez. Find out more about him at instituteofbiblicaldefense.com. And it's about that time, the end of the show. But you can find more stories at talesoftherevolution.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or anywhere you find podcasts. And while you're at TalesOfTheRevolution.com, be sure to sign up for email updates so you can get access to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. Thank you so much for listening. This is Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. And this episode was entitled, A Journey to Faith. Until next time, put your faith on display as you live the revolution. <laughs>